It says recording. We are recording. Yep. Oh. There we go. We got it. We are on. Okay. Uh, start of episode two of PodBN COVID edition. Today I've got some guests here from the McLean County Museum of History to talk about what how they've been impacted and also what they've been seeing in the community. So uh, got. Uh, three people on today, Candace Summers, Rachel Massa, and Hannah Johnson. Could you guys please introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your role in the museum, and then we can see where the conversation goes. Maybe, Candace, you can go first. Sure. Um, I'm the Director of Education at the McLean County Museum of History, and so I work with Hannah um, in the Education Department, and we educate adults, kids, inside the building, outside the building, um, about local history, regional history, um, so it's a lot of fun. Rachel. Uh, my name is Rachel Massa. I'm director of volunteers and interns at the museum. Uh, my my main job is to, I don't know, rally as many people from the community to kind of um, help us operate the museum. Without our volunteers, we wouldn't be able to open our doors. Um, so um, basically, and I know we we will the direction will go there, but. I've been <clears throat> in contact with uh, with the volunteers and interns um, during this time, and that's my department. All right, and Hannah. All right, uh, so Hannah Johnson, Education Program Coordinator. So as Candice mentioned, um, we are two of three full-time um, education staff at the museum. So Anthony Bowman is our uh, third um, partner in all of this, um, but again, uh, you know, more or less we're an educational institution. And so our department um, coordinates with all other departments in the various things that we do um, on-site and off-site at the museum. All right. So before we got on, Hannah, you were talking a little bit about the timeline of what the museum has done. So maybe we could start there. When did you uh, decide to close the physical space and then how have things adjusted since then and how has your your mission continued in some form since then? Yeah, good question. Um, so in terms of chronology, uh, we've officially been closed to the public since Saturday, March 14th. Um, and we really started putting that plan in motion um, the Thursday before. So Thursday, March 12th, we gathered as staff um, new information had becoming available, particularly locally, right? There were people talking about, um, you know, kind of how close, right, is this virus to McLean County? With a little bit of the knowledge, it was already here, of course, um, but really getting a good idea of how it was gonna start impacting institutions um, and the public at large. And so um, following a staff meeting, um, we reached out to fellow organizations akin to ourselves to kind of see what they were talking about internally and how they were planning to move forward. Um, and kind of, again, wanting to make sure that we, even at that point, we're all in this together, right? And so kind of um, doing our due diligence, but knowing um, that regardless, the museum was going to move forward um, with some kind of significant um, plans. And so our press release went out that Friday, uh, Friday the 13th, right, uh, to say that we'd be closed um, come Saturday. And uh, so me personally, the last time I reported um, in the building to work 
you know, kind of per usual um, was that following Monday. It was still open um, to staff members to come in um, and do work. And there was kind of this understanding that uh, we'd continue to operate as usual, though we'd be closed to the public, um, but the space would be still available to us. Um, and then we know how quickly, you know, information changes and the nature of things. And so, you know, even again, just personally, I was under the impression that I'd be continuing to report to work at least for a little while. And it was by that Tuesday that it was just, you know, it was no longer in the cards. And so um, we still have a staff person select staff people who are um, regularly entering the building, um, mainly because it's one of the biggest artifacts we have, right? So a historic um, building with obviously um, historically significant items within it, we need to make sure that we're doing our best to maintain our collections as well as the building itself. Mm -hmm. To your knowledge, has there ever been another time um, when I can't, other than like a blizzard, like this doesn't really happen, right? We don't close down buildings at all with it. Did you have, like, did you have processes set up in place to try to facilitate it or were you, um, you guys just have to figure all that out day at a time? Yeah, so uh, Candace probably has the longest tenure with the museum, so her institutional memory might be longer um, than Rachel and mine in terms of closures. So Candace, how would you respond to that? So, because um, I've been at the museum almost 15 years now, the only other time I can think of where we closed to the public for a short period of, a short period of time was when we had to evacuate our artifacts from our collection areas, which are on the ground floor. So the, the city, I believe, was working on this big 100-year-old water main in downtown, and there was the fear that as they were working on it, they would break it, and then that would flood our building. And so we had to move everything that we possibly could from the ground floor collection areas up to the upper levels. And I, I want to say we were shut down for a good week, if not maybe a little more, because it took time to move everything up and then for them to do the work and then to move everything back down. So there was a plan for that type of emergency. But as far as, you know, what we've been going through now, it's, it really, we all came together and developed this really awesome plan with how to maintain the building, how to handle emergencies, you know, that all of us have been pulling together to create new digital content and digitize additional things. Um, so yeah, even, even with that small experience in our history, yeah, I don't think anything's, anybody's ever seen anything to this scale before. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about what you mean of um, like adding additional digital content? What are you guys doing there? Well, uh, some of the things that we're doing is are digitizing books and publications that were not digitized before. So one of the things that came to my mind as we were, you know, going through these uncharted waters was what could we get out there for schools that they could find useful. And we have um, a series of three books. Um, they're small books. They're geared towards uh, middle school. And we had sent them out previously as hard copy editions to schools in the area. And one of the teachers must have been reading my mind because the very like the very Monday after school had been 
um, canceled in person, I got an email saying, hey, could you in any way get us a digital copy of Journey Through the Great Depression? We use that book with our kids every year and those books are in the classroom. And I said, well, I'm glad you asked because that's one of the things that we're gonna do. Um, so we were able to get it digitized really quickly and I sent that link out and I already heard from a couple teachers within like a day of how appreciative they were to have that resource. They could still use it with their students and what a valuable tool it is. Um, so things like nice. that, we're definitely, you know, trying to, to get out there more. And yeah. Hannah has come up, had created a really awesome resource, which she can tell you more about too. Yeah. I'd love to hear about any sort of things that you, you all have been doing to try to help people through this trying time. So are, that's a, a great example. Are there any other examples like that? Yeah, so again, we have, you know, various audiences um, that we're attempting to connect with um, and kind of maintain connections with, right, during this time. And so obviously school groups and teachers and classrooms um, is a, a primary audience that we want to make sure, um, you know, just between kind of that March to mid-May, you know, we had 70 plus programs. Now, not all school groups, um, but some sort of public program or event that we had to cancel. And so these are the various um, audiences that we have in mind. And so, um, again, social media, right, um, is this really useful tool at this moment. And it's one of those things where people describe the situation as you know, unprecedented. Well, there's been pandemics before, but it's this unique nature of, you know, the kind of this digital connectivity, you know, that makes this really, you know, uncharted territory and so, or an unprecedented experience. And um, so through social media, um, we started our Muse to You series, um, which is an opportunity for us as the education department and the museum as a whole to share out activities um, that we might do on-site or off-site um, with uh, school-aged uh, kids and students, um, but also just kind of family-friendly um, in general. Um, and so we post those twice a week. Um, it's an opportunity, again, to kind of that artificial, uh, you know, um, human interaction, right? So we've got videos going um, so we can show off our familiar faces with maybe some of those um, families and school groups that weren't able to attend, um, but also just put out activities um, that uh, can either align with um, e-learning goals or again, just be kind of an opportunity to, to work together um, on, on an activity. Um, and so, uh, so again, that's our, our Muse to You, which is an addition um, to the other, you know, articles and um, publications that we've been digitizing. Uh, we worked interdepartmentally to, to create a comprehensive list of all our various digital resources. And so that's available um, through our mchistory.org website. Um, and we've been sharing that out um, with our groups as well. And then uh, Anthony, our fellow educator, um, has really got his finger on the pulse um, of our senior centers and the needs of our older adult population. Um, and so uh, he's our outreach coordinator. And so he's been working closely um, with activity directors and things because again, the nature of senior centers, um, we go into these spaces with our senior reminiscence program 
and um, all three of us are in, you know, up to seven to nine senior centers a month. Um, and obviously that's not a possibility right now. And uh, really within those senior centers, it's not a possibility for them to have much group activity at all. And so um, that's an, an at-risk population that we're really concerned about um, just in terms of kind of mental and social health um, during this time as their, you know, caregivers are taking care of their, their physical well-being. Um, and then outreach to volunteers, right? And um, that core group is something that Rachel can speak to as well. Yeah, so um, in terms of volunteers, the museum has approximately a little over 150 volunteers. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of them are retirees, all professionals from all walks of life, a variety of backgrounds. History is so universal, right? It brings all walks of life together. So. Um, I'm concerned about our volunteers. Um, most of them are seniors, like I said, and, um, and, and an at-risk kind of, um, kind of one of the more vulnerable populations to this COVID-19. So um, the Thursday before the governor um, kind of gave this shelter in place on Saturday, the Thursday before that Saturday, we told volunteers um, not to report anymore. I contacted those that were um, scheduled to work that day and then the the next week to let them know um, by calling them um, to let them know please please do not report we're concerned your safety is the most important thing um, so um, none of our volunteers are reporting um, I've been keeping in communication with the volunteers throughout the day um, every day I try to you know, whether it's making phone calls, emails, um, um, many volu the volunteer community, there are many different communication avenues that people use. So um, I try to be mindful if, if somebody prefers to be called or somebody likes to be texted. Um, I've heard from most of our volunteers and the ones that I haven't heard back from, I, I'm trying to call them. Um, everybody I've been hearing back from is hanging in there. Um, they're doing all right. Um, some of them are in, uh, in assisted living facilities like Hannah mentioned um, and they, have the means and support um, that they need. Um, some of them um, are living alone, um, but have family in town. Um, some of them um, um, have, you know, their their kids home. My me personally, I'm my third grade daughter Rose is home with me. So a lot of um, you know some parents, uh, volunteers, some volunteers that have their college age students home with them. You know, it's a variety of circumstances. One volunteer really wants to start a um, kind of um, um, rationing for toilet paper. One is doing yard work. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways people are feeling passing their time right now. Uh, but my, as director of volunteers, my main priority is how can I be here for them? Um, so. I'm just trying as much as I can to reach out to them. Um, one of our staff members, Tori Moray, she's the digital curator of humanities. Um, she started with the, her, with the help of other community leaders and teachers and organizers have formed um, the McLean County COVID-19 relief team. 
Um, and for all the viewers out there, um, if you would like someone to run an errand for you, somebody who is healthy, um, somebody who has the means and the resources to do so, um, I have the number right here. If anybody wants to is listening, wants to write it down. Um, people are calling a lot and they are, you know, people are utilizing the service. So please do. Um, and what that is that number? That number is area code 309-839-9496. And again, that's the McLean County COVID-19 relief team. Um, I also have been begging, no, <laughs> really trying to get people to call me, call my cell phone, email me, text me. <laughs> I just want to know how everybody's doing. So um, it, I'm a little overwhelmed. I'm a little concerned. I'm a little stressed for everybody. But the, the, the stories and feedback that I've been getting from most people have been that they're hanging in there and they're using this time safely and, and wisely. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned that that COVID-19 relief group. I, I volunteer for that. Actually, I delivered oh, some groceries uh, oh, last week. Um, Thank you. Apparently they have, there've been an outpouring of um, volunteers come where um, a different person can do it every day uh, in a two week rotation now, which is kind of nice. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, the response has been pretty overwhelming to that. And I tell you, uh, she really did her, research um setting that up there's some very detailed instructions about like how to clean properly and when to clean and like everything's all very sanitized and really safe and so i was um I'm, that's exactly the kind of stuff that i'm wanting to try to highlight on this podcast is how people are overcoming this and still coming together so um i think i might have uh i think i might have an episode that highlights that too because it's a really cool thing there's a temptation to just kind of sit and wait for the powers that be to help you right whether that's federal or national you know state or whatever city but people can take that into their own hands so very cool um so i i'm curious rachel as you're talking to people do any w without betraying any confidences do any stories stand out to you in particular that you've heard um either positive or negative from people um you know it's interesting two people have had one person had their oven and stove break um and she says she's had it for 20 years or so and it broke and then another volunteer said that her microwave broke and she's had it for a long time <laughs> so um, those, I guess those were similar stories. So that's why those, um, a couple people have just gotten into town from, you know, snowboarding in Florida or California. Um, one of the volunteers that was in Naples, Florida, her son and grandson drove down to get her because they didn't want to fly. Um, and so those people who are coming back into town, they're snowbirds. I like to keep an eye on them and make sure they have family in town. If they don't, um, then I wanna be here. I personally don't have family in town, so I'm healthy and ready to go with anything I can, um, any way I can. I'm trying to think. Um, nobody seems too terribly frustrated. Um, everybody seems like their attitudes 
are, they're trying to remain positive. Um, and um, the interns, I also, the volunteer is also the internship department. We had three interns this past semester. All of those interns will complete their internship with the amount of hours that they've already completed. Um, we've talked to advisors from Illinois State University and they are just happy that their the student has got um, a quality, strong experience. So um, those students are mostly at home with family and mm -hmm. are, those three students are not on campus. Um, um, so um, yeah, everybody, it seems like the, the general kind of feeling I'm getting are uh, most people are trying to hang in there and they tell me they'll reach out to me. Um, some volunteers I feel maybe feel too proud, um, but it's, um, I really am trying to be as, up as upbeat and excitable and enthusiastic in my language um, mm -hmm. to help them feel comfortable to reaching out because um, I know this is, you know, the pride gets in the way with a lot of our seniors and um, this isn't the time to um, be too proud. It's a time yeah. to ask for help if you need. Yeah. Um, Midwesterners are pretty good at enduring things. I think where we can get, we can flip that stoic switch on pretty well. Um, but that doesn't always mean that you're, you're doing completely well. So yeah, that can get in the way of you asking for help, even if the help is just somebody to talk to and have a conversation with, right? If you're a extrovert and feeling drained because you don't have that connection, um, you know, people need to, to, yeah, not, not be proud about that and, and reach out when they, when they need to. One too, uh, I think that brings to light how, you know, the nature of our work and just the nature of how we, again, navigate these social spaces is different now, right? And so the expectations that we have for ourselves and each other have to kind of shift. Um, and so even just in terms of how we are conceptualizing the work that we're doing as the museum, um, some of that is simply, again, like Tori, taking the time to set up this, you know, mutual aid relief team, or some of that is simply having those conversations with volunteers or other staff members um, or other people in the community, unrelated, quote unquote, to your day-to-day -day work. Um, maybe it's your neighbor next door. So the roles that we're playing um, have varied, you know, in certain ways that it's still we're still working full time, right? But it's just in, in kind of different respects depending on our particular situations, right? Because even within staff, each of us are in a very unique circumstance. Um, and, you know, if you're educating now your child full time, in addition to reaching out to 150 volunteers, um, you know, that might be your entire day, right? Mm -hmm. So planning ahead, for you know, next season's big new thing might not be on the table. Um, but then there's those of us who maybe have a little bit more flexibility, um, who mm -hmm. can try to be you know proactive in the new realities that we find ourselves now and get some stuff out there. And you know, that's the thing too is you know that idea of perfection, right? Just as much as like pride doesn't apply perfection in these. In, instances doesn't really apply either so it's about like 
doing our best um, to be out there and to be making those connections, but not being overly worried with, you know, how polished this is, because this is new for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do, uh, do any other stories come to mind from people that you've interacted with or your own personal experience? Anything notable about how people are handling it? Well, as, I guess as, as to speak to what Hannah just said, um, my daughter's in third grade. She goes to Bent School, and we just trying to balance the, the work from home and the e-learning, trying to incorporate all the activities that Rose and I are doing at home into trying to incorporate education and learning into all of the things that we're doing at home. So yeah, I think everybody's kind of realities are shifting. Um, other, other, um, let's see, um, lots of, I've heard some people are getting into good books. Um, some people are doing yard work. Um, some people are cleaning out and kind of been not binging, but they're, they're uh, purging their food, their, um, their, uh, closets and, um, I know Mission Mart has closed, um, unfortunately, um, but people are, I, I want more stories. That's why I'm trying to um, kind of encourage volunteers to reach out to me um, and um, no, no specific story that's so alarming or, um, you know, so kind of sticks out. Everybody's kind of just trying to to hang yeah. in there. On the uh, topic I mean, of stories, yeah, uh, Tyson, not to cut you off, um, but that's another part of this whole um, you know experience and the the role that the museum really needs to play is um, not just capturing the stories of staff and volunteers and those who have a close connection to the museum, um, but capturing the stories of everyone in McLean County who's navigating. Um, this experience in different ways. And so our collections teams, you know, our curator and our archival collections people, and then Tori, our curator of digital humanities, um, are working together. Um, and there's an online campaign where we're encouraging um, folks to submit um, elements of their particular experience, um, as well as kind of um, disseminating how-tos um, for those who are interested in journaling in some way, um, given their chosen medium. And so the museum is, you know, in the process of actively um, collecting those stories. And we've been fortunate that there were other um, community members and leaders um, in town who reached out to the museum and have helped get some of those conversations going. And, um, you know, being aware of the collections efforts of Illinois Wesleyan and ISU and other institutions that are attempting to kind of capture the stories of their particular audiences and demographics. Um, but it's our job, again, as the McLean County Museum of History, to make sure that we're not just telling the Bloomington Normal story, we're telling the story of um, various communities within the county. Um, but also, again, the challenge of collecting these very personal, um, you know, archival, uh, uh, communications and stories uh, exclusively through digital means until the time that it's safe um, to kind of have the, these in-person conversations. And so we've mm -hmm. got a short list of, um, you know, the stories that we explicitly want to capture, right? And that's, um, 
first responders and medical um, staffers and that's um, workers in grocery stores and other essential businesses. That's small business owners in restaurants who've had to shutter temporarily. Um, that's people in the nonprofit sector who are, you know, working um, with their communities in various ways. And that's just, you know, everyday people who are, again, maybe now full-time teachers for their kids, or again, teachers who are now having to communicate with their students um, digitally. So, uh, you know, we want each and everybody's um, story. We're not discriminating in that way, but there are obviously certain key audiences or demographics um, that we really want to make sure that we capture. Um, so, you know, in 50 years, if someone wants to know the story of COVID-19 in McLean County, we're able to tell that story um, from various perspectives. Yeah, well, that's kind of where I was going. You anticipated what I was thinking as I was wondering how you guys were doing that. Um, and I assume it's something that you're doing all the time, right? You're always collecting bits of the history that are going on as things develop, but this presents additional challenges given that it's um it has to all be digital right yeah um yeah and so uh we've you know more or less put on hold any uh object donations right that'll just have to come when it comes um but it's also something that we want people to be thinking about um in this uh this time and since we don't know, you know, the duration of the situation we find ourselves um it's really important to capture those those elements and those stories um, as they come and as they evolve. And, you know, even um, again, keeping track of some of those major dates and those declarations and, you know, those various milestones um, that have helped inform and shape um, that kind of larger, larger narrative. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, this is the means by which we are doing it and you know kind of that rapid response collecting um, is something that we haven't necessarily done um, super recently but we are constantly striving to collect contemporary history right every day we're making history so um, whether that's you know protests and marches or whether that's a pandemic or whether that's you know um the most recent local business to close down or to open right like trying to capture um those pieces but i think situations like this kind of uh bring it into perspective how imperative um those constant collection efforts are um because you never quite know when the rules might change you know, mm -hmm. and these are definitely new rules that we're having to abide by that we haven't had before. Yeah. Do you guys know if anyone has reached out to the museum for any historical context, like like Spanish flu or Great Depression or other things? Has there, have there been requests for information of that type? Well, Panagraph actually, what was it? I think like a week maybe the week that we did the shelter in place, wanted to reprint um, our librarian, Bill Kemp, one of his Sunday column um, page from our past articles that he had written about the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. Mm -hmm. um, so he actually took it a little step further and kind of updated it with some new information and kind of drew some parallels to what was going on, you know, in the community at that time. Um, and I know that I think we've shared some um, photos via Facebook and things like that that showcase 
that kind of early history too. There was a, another article they reprinted about um, when uh, the polio um, was really widespread in the area and there was a shortage of iron lungs, which are needed to keep people who had paralysis able to breathe and they made wooden iron lungs. Um, I think it was St. Joe's Hospital and a local business, I, the name escapes me right now, but they teamed up to develop this wooden iron lung to answer that need. So kind of that um, ingenuity that people are doing now with making masks at home, you know, trying to come up with new ways to get, you know, respirators and things like that. Hmm. Was there anything else that um, I, I usually uh, do catch Bill's articles in the pantograph, but I missed that one um, about the, the Spanish flu. Kind of, what was the, like, were there any overall points or summary that you could share on that one? Or I, maybe you didn't read it that closely. But It talked, it talked about, because he printed it a number of years ago, and so they wanted to rerun it. And it talked about what, how locally responded to when people started getting sick here. So they turned the country club, Bloomington Country Club, into a temporary hospital. Vrooman mm. Mansion, Carl and Julia Vrooman, had temporary hospital quarters in their own um, area as well how there you know were advertisements telling people to stay home don't go to movies don't congregate in groups and so how this area responded with similar things that are being done today not that we have to turn anything locally into hospitals yet hopefully mm -hmm. we'll but um just showing people kind of some of the similarities and parallels there were in history with people having to shelter in place and change their daily lives in order to halt the curve and stop the spread yeah yeah um, I've done a bit of research on the Spanish flu prior to this. I'm a life actuary, so I, like, we deal with mortality and we've, I, part of my job one time was doing like mortality, catastrophic mortality event modeling. So we, we, um, I spent some time looking at that previously. And, um, what I've been very thankful for in this is that, um, what I understand one of the big problems with the Spanish flu is that there was a high mortality rate for people that are uh, in their 30s and 40s mm -hmm. and um, that doesn't seem to be the case with um, with this disease not that you want anyone to have a high mortality rate but in particular if you start taking out people in that um, you know those are people who are parents of young kids and are like you know key members of keeping the economy moving and so it was particularly um disruptive because like anybody could could be um could be susceptible to it and hopefully that uh hopefully that doesn't that was like been the main thing i've been looking at as i see the data is like is there any indication that that middle population has started to get a increased lift in it and i've been happy to see that that's not the case uh so far and hopefully if we keep keep uh social distancing and keep this thing from spreading it won't mutate and do something like that but um yeah, that history of it, though morbid, is is quite interesting. We also don't have World War Two. Um, sorry, we also don't have World War One trenches that a lot of us are hanging out in anymore. So that's um, that's also good for men. In, the curve that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> men in their thirties. Um, although maybe they could be in their trenches like six six feet apart from each other. Yeah, okay, but um, yeah. Let's see. So. Um, so you mentioned people are still coming into the building to maintain the the displays. Um, 
could someone talk a little bit about what precautions they're taking and what they're doing in the building while they're there? Yeah, so again, um, social distancing is obviously imperative. Um, there's never more than two people in the building at once and they're not occupying similar spaces. Um, but again, maintenance of the building as well as the collections um, is a top priority for us, right? Um, and so if we're going to uh, kind of keep to our promise of um, preserving these objects in perpetuity, um, we have to make sure that uh, everything is on the up and up. And so we've established, um, you know, basically a checklist. And so um, checking out the various collections areas um, and uh, other potential problem spots within the within the building um, and doing that routine survey a number of times a week. Um, and then, you know, there's still mail um, to go through and there's still some checks to process, right? And so um, that's, you know, one of, you know, sometimes and oftentimes I think in organizations, the unsung heroes are uh, the development departments, right? And so um, they're keeping, you know, bills paid and um, donors um, in the know and uh, outreach in that way, um, but also, again, will be imperative um, in helping us weather um, this situation. Um, and it's gonna be a time where there's a lot of, I don't wanna say competition, you know what I mean? But there's gonna be limited um, funds and there's gonna be a lot of really great causes um, to give to and to support. And so um, they're you know, not physically on site apart from you know, collecting mail and processing checks, but um, that's another, uh, element, you know, that's uh, really important that we um, acknowledge. Um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, it's really that that social distancing and the ensuring that um, there's very limited people um, in the space at once and disinfecting any um, commonly used um, spaces like doorknobs and that sort of thing. Um, so that's just kind of a everyday procedure now is kind of cleaning up as you go in and cleaning up as you go out to ensure that that space remains at equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I, I mean, it's kind of easy to tell that you need to be closed now because of the governor's orders. Um, do you guys know, are there certain like metrics that the, that the museum's looking at as far as like when to reopen? Do you think you'll mostly trust the state direction on that? Has there been any conversation along those lines of how will we know it's safe to reopen and in what capacity or is it, is it just too hard to tell at this point? That a lot of hypothetical conversations. I will say, I think for most people, right, it is just, it's impossible to predict. Um, so when we closed originally, you know, we had said, um, again, going at that point a little bit by um, ISU's decision and state schools um, based on when they were closing through April 10th at that point, um, we were gonna be closed through April 7th. Um, obviously we've extended that deadline, um, but that was just in a matter of weeks, right? Um, that we had to, to make that decision. And so definitely, um, and obviously going by state mandates and standards, um, but there's just a lot of conversation, not just internally, but with other organizations like ourselves, right? And so our fellow museums in town, like the Children's Discovery Museum and the David Davis Mansion, as well as other cultural centers, you know, Miller Park Zoo and U of I Extension um, and others where we're 
having those conversations amongst ourselves, right? To kind of establish uh, the public libraries too, right? So we all have mm -hmm. different bodies that we answer to. Some of us are city level, some of us are state level. Um, and so we're able to kind of glean um, insight from those uh, different um, perspectives and uh, establish, hope to establish some sort of consensus on how we move forward as a community, not just as is as individual institutions as much as possible. Um, so, you know, summer programming is probably the biggest um, conversation um, happening right now because we've pretty much written off spring, you know, um, we realize that we're getting through um, the school year, but we're facing a summer that has just as many unknowns. Um, you know, we're becoming more and more educated every day, I think, in how to adapt. Um, and then, you know, depending on what summer brings and even what the next couple of months bring, um, those conversations will continue into fall programming. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's difficult to realize that kind of all of 2020 um, is inevitably in question, right? Because regardless of when our various institutions are back open to the public. Um, the way that we're engaging with those publics is likely going to be different. Um, and, you know, there's the potential that group sizes will be limited, you know, for a longer time than even we're, you know, back out in public spaces. Um, we don't know what the school systems will be doing come fall. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's a really great opportunity uh, to be able to work within certain creative constraints, um, but it's a little bit surreal, you know, because most of us in this industry, um, we're working, you know, a year out at least, right? We've got calendars and, um, and program ideas and benchmarks to hit. And um, yeah, you just have to accept that um, you're gonna do the best you can, um, but what you had planned may or may not um, happen. But I know with, again, a lot of people in education, um, especially with informal um, educators, summer programming, you know, is a really big time for our um, sector to shine. And we want to be able to provide those services to our summer campers and our daycare centers who utilize our um, institutions in various ways and summer reading programs and all of that and so um yeah summertime is going to be it's going to be a hard thing depending on what the circumstances are yeah yeah i'm a big planner myself i that's how i deal with anxiety and i've had to admit that this is not a um not an option available to me at this time so right. i i um actually it's i'm having to me on friday that some of the plans you set up like someone's going to be working on something different and some of the plans that I had set up for that person to do on my team are, is not going to be different and I got like I got more upset than I typically get at work about it like it stuck with me for all evening I was just very grumpy I couldn't let it go and then I I realized like once you know now that a couple of days have passed I'm like I don't think it was that big of a deal it's just I couldn't handle one more set of plans that I had getting messed up again like I, just, <laughs> I need to have something work on it for more than two weeks as I would like it to but it, it's just not the reality of where we're at right now with anything so. right and it's 
you know, it's tough because the, the museum as an institution has its own history, right? And so we've been kind of, we've engaged with our publics in different ways throughout our history. And, you know, speaking just from a personal um, perspective, we were really on this cusp of being highly active, right, in the community. And I don't think anybody would question that. And the amount of time spent out in the community and then inviting others into our space um, was kind of snowballing in a way that maybe some of us were like, we don't know how long this is sustainable. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of this identity of the museum in this current um, moment. And very quickly, you know, um, the opportunity to engage um, with those communities um, at the local level, at the, you know, international level, right? Like we had a museum exchange that we were partnering with the Vladimir Canterbury Sister City Association and upwards of 15 other organizations um, locally and throughout the state. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not happening, right? Because international travel, domestic travel is no longer part of the equation. Um, and so, yeah, it just really forces you um, to kind of reflect and reprioritize um, but it can be a little frustrating and that mm -hmm. new pace and that new, you know, those new expectations can take a little time to um, acclimate to, right? Because the community is still a priority. Um, and so if we can't be in it and amongst it, um, how do we maintain that momentum that we're really working hard um, towards achieving um, at a time where, you know, those personal connections are a little bit harder to, to maintain. Well, I love how you put it that you got to see it, uh, to see it as a constraint that uh, results in creativity, like um, almost like poetry, right? Like poetry is defined by its constraints. And so you, you, um, you can see these as being roadblocks that are interfering with your ability to do things, or you can see them as um, an opportunity to approach something in a new way. And then whenever things do get back to how they were, you're going to have more of these creative options available to you, right? You'll be, you'll right. be stronger for having found ways to push through these types of things. And, um, you know, you'll probably know who your most dedicated volunteers are. You'll probably have, um, you know, better alternative uh, backup planning if something doesn't work as you'd want it to. You know, I'm just thinking next winter, if we have to close for a snow day, like how easy that will seem to us now. <laughs> like, right, oh, exactly right. Yeah. It's going to snow exactly. and then it's going to melt. Then we're going to go back. Like it's going to be nice. <laughs> totally prepared. Like, yeah. Whereas before that would have been a huge disruption to us. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I it, I'm, what I'm taking away from all this, not having known much about how the museum works, but after talking to you guys, it seems like it's a, resilient organization that will um you know this like like exercising a muscle this strength will will increase through being strained in this way so hi um i'm really happy that you're coordinating with the other other facilities in town too because pooling that knowledge and having a combined approach sounds sounds really um sounds really good um, well, I told you guys an hour would go fast. We're creeping up on an hour here, so I don't want to keep you too long on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I guess just uh, I'll just give you all a chance for any kind of closing thought, like a message that you want to share with other people, um, either from the perspective of the museum or your own personal perspective or just anything you would you'd like to um, 
say to folks while you, you've got this uh, opportunity here. So um, Candice, do you want to start? Yeah. So for me, it's been really weird not being at the museum every day because, you know, I go in every day, sometimes six, seven days a week, you know, to come up with programs or plan for events. And so I set foot in the museum for the first time in like two weeks last uh, Thursday to make a marathon of copies to get ready for hopefully our cemetery walk this fall. And it was like kind of nerve wracking and weird at the same time, but then empty because I'm used to people being there. And so I really look forward to the time that our museum is able to reopen and that we can welcome the public back in so they can explore the building and explore the exhibits. But just know for people that we're here and we're working hard, even though remotely, and there's lots of great resources out there that can help you either support them, help you with your school activities, help you with your genealogy, all that kind of good stuff, you know, that we're working to create for you. Yeah, great. Um, Rachel, any final thoughts from you? Um, my message is just to please everybody who's listening, just please be safe. Um, um, don't hesitate to reach out to people in your life for help, even if you are super strong and can do everything by yourself. Um, please reach out. Um, I am hoping to, I miss everybody. It is also strange for me not going into the museum and um, I consider all of our volunteers, my friends. And so um, I'm just hoping that everybody returns um, and um, is um, just knows that, um, just know that we are here for you. We are here for the community in any way that we can help. Um, please share your testimonials online with us about your daily activities, what you're doing. We are making history together. So we need your stories, um, everybody's stories. Um, and so um, I would just say, um, be well. Um, thank you for having us, Tyson. And um, um, come see us when we reopen. We will keep you all posted. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Um, and Hannah? Yeah. Um, so personally, again, it's just a reminder that um, likely, you know, there won't be a returning to normal, right? Like each day, um, we're not only making history, right? But we're kind of shaping our present um, on the fly. Um, and so just to be open um, to uh, the various opportunities that may emerge um, in, this, in this time together. Um, but, you know, again, to, to take the opportunity to um, to refocus and reprioritize and um, kind of embrace um, whatever um, this moment is for all of us and to realize again how unique our various experiences are and how valuable it is um, for us as a community and specifically the history museum to be able um, to to capture um, you know those stories and and curate that. Um, history um, of our community during this time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just, just be well, obviously, um, and take the time to do good, right? We are kind of positioned um, in a 
weird nebulous space right now. So uh, take, take advantage of it in the ways that you can for yourself, but also for those who are, are close to you and just the, the community at large, right? I think this, this local perspective is something that we always um, promote. Um, and right now there is literally no time like the present um, to engage and become aware of what resources you have available locally and the, the producers amongst us, right? Farmers and artists and um, cultural centers and educational resources. Um, we have a really robust community that is well positioned um, to, to weather um, this historic event together. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's a perfect example of, um, you know, your point of making connections with people and seeing it as an opportunity because I otherwise wouldn't have had a chance to talk to you guys. So I'm really glad you reached out and that you, you took your time to chat with me. So thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity. If, uh, if people want to learn more, um, you're on Facebook, right? Yeah, so definitely follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. We're most active um, there. And then our, our website is mchistory.org. Um, and all of the various things that we're um, posting via social media, um, most of them can also be accessed um, through, through the website. Um, we do have a phone number, but um, again, not regular staff attending yeah. to the phones right now. So email um, and connecting through the website or social media is our, our primary modus operandi these days. And if people want to send in their own personal stories, they can find links on the website for how to do that. Correct, on the website, okay. and then we'll be posting regularly um, on Facebook as well, um, giving people various uh, opportunities to, to submit those stories. All right, well, I'll put that information in the show notes, and um, I'll also put in the contact number for the McLean County um, for the relief task force. Um, oh, great. Well, right before we break, I do want to thank our sponsors, um, Play Normal Esports, who is unfortunately closed now. That's why I'm in my um, I'm in my backup Podbean studio right here. I've got my, my labels, my logos up there. Um, and then uh, Normal Gadgets is still open, uh, and they are doing specials on phone cleaning right now. So you know your phone is really dirty, so you can bring it over to um, Normal Gadgets and they clean that up for you. And then um, BR Law is our last sponsor and they are open um, not physically but they're taking calls and um, so they are available to help too so any listeners who want to go help support some local businesses please um, consider dropping dropping them a line well candace rachel and hannah thanks a lot for your time um, thanks for what you do for the community and um, look forward to coming and visit the museum when it opens up again thank you thank you tyson bye have a good day everybody yeah all right.